If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. He was internationally known as a developer of artificial insemination, an incredibly important technique because it means that you can increase the number of horses that you have available to agriculture tenfold within a generation. So it's rather like discovering oil. That was Simon Ings discussing science in the Soviet era. What I like people to realise is quite how well the British coped during rationing. In a way, we kind of relished it. I think it's one of the reasons why we're never going to be a sort of naturally brilliant food culture because when we were challenged with living on the ration, the British people just said, yeah, we will, and we'll love it. And that was William Sitwell on the British people's experience of rationing during the Second World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of November 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with the author Simon Ings, whose new book, Stalin and the Scientists, delves into the fascinating history of science in the early Soviet era. And as I discovered, it's a story of tremendous achievements, as well as some catastrophic mistakes. How would you describe the state of science in Russia prior to the revolutions of 1917? There was very little science in Russia prior to that time. What there was was conducted largely through the uh, Academy of Sciences, um, which was uh, originally created by Peter the Great. Uh, And that had been uh, a visionary attempt to bootstrap a homegrown science base by creating two academies, one that was going to be full of European learning and one that was going to be full of people who had come up in Russia, who'd learned from the Europeans and were were going to be the the, the home team, if you like. Um, There wasn't enough money at the time, so what we ended up with was um, a very Eurocentric um, uh, Academy of Sciences that provided scientific advice uh, and and, uh, data and knowledge for the uh, Tsarist government. And it was successful more in terms of gathering data than in actually producing practical work or producing practical applications that farmers could use or industry could use. Um, It was very much uh, uh, an academic exercise rather than an applied exercise. And um, that too is perfectly acceptable and there's no problem with it provided you're not the only institution in the country doing anything. And so at the time of the revolution, what you had was a set of people who were not uh, sympathetic to their Bolshevik paymasters, who were prepared to establish a collegiate relationship for the sake of the country, for the sake of patriotism, and who were all European educated, which, again, no problem with that, until such time as your government then decides that a European education is ipso facto uh, politically suspect. So you're talking about very, very thin on the ground science base, if you can call it a science base at all. I mean, there was no physics, for example, before the revolution. All biology was entirely descriptive. 
and uh, your agrobiology or your agriculture, which of course is a, a main issue for uh, Russia, uh, which has always historically had an unbelievable amount of difficulty feeding itself. Your agricultural knowledge is, is mainly around rare crops rather than applications for you know feeding large numbers of people, which is one of the triggers for the revolution, of course. When 1891, 1892 came around, government was actually quite good at dealing with uh, the famine, but by then nobody wanted to hear the good news. So the Bolsheviks who took over in October 1917 were led by a number of intellectuals. Was that therefore quite a good thing for scientists in Russia? By and large, yes. The Bolsheviks were very interested in maintaining institutions, in creating new ones. They had very little money, but they had a great deal of property from people who had fled the country, from the aristocracy and the uh, middle classes who had uh, fled the country. And so if you wanted to set up a scientific institution in the early years of the Bolshevik uh, government, you stood a very good chance of actually getting some property. Getting chairs might be a problem, getting tables might be a problem, and heating the places would be virtually impossible, but you would actually get the building. There are some extraordinary stories I came across. Uh, there's a lovely one uh, of the early years of Timofeyev Frosovsky, who was uh, leading geneticist in the end but he began life dressing up in a red cross uniform going to neighboring institutions and high-handedly and by complete fraud stealing all their equipment for his own institution so given the uh, shortages of the time it was a good time uh, to be uh, a very good time to be a scientist in russia you actually had entire disciplines being bolted together and new ideas being given their day in the sun a young researcher by the name of Alexander Luria, who became uh, a, a phenomenally important pioneering uh, neuropsychologist and basically invented the discipline of neuropsychology. He began life at Kornilov's uh, Moscow uh, Psychological Institute and was given free reign for all number of studies in child development, in psychoanalysis, and in fact came up with the lie detector, a Soviet lie detector independently of uh, developments in the West. How much was science part of the Bolsheviks' own worldview? It was essential. It was central. It's legitimate, and I well, I hope it's legitimate because I certainly promulgate this line in my book, to say that Marxism was the acme of 19th century scientism, the belief that the sciences would eventually all be able to join up with each other and there would be a single coherent scientific explanation of everything, a theory of everything. So that, for example, you could explain one's psychological state through one's physiology, one's physiology according to the anatomy of and the histology of the brain, from there to the chemistry, from there to the physics, and everything would join up seamlessly. And Marxism was to be the earth science, the pinnacle of those different disciplines which have been split up uh, essentially by capitalism. And under socialism, these sciences would cohere under the Marxist system, under the system of dialectical materialism. And so it was a state founded on the idea of scientific rationality. And of course, the tragedy of that is that it's founded as a rational scientific state at the very point at which scientists in a number of unrelated disciplines are turning around and saying, the world isn't rational. We thought it was rational because rationality has proved such a wonderful tool for unpicking so much of it, but we've actually hit a, a hard barrier here. And it turns out that even though we can use the tools of mathematics and rationality and reason, 
to unpick a lot of the world, we've actually realized that the world is far wilder than that, and there's a limit to what we can understand. And uh, a couple of examples, the one that everyone talks about, of course, is uh, um, Einstein's theories of relativity and the, the quantum revolution that that ushered in. But the more day-to-day problem, of course, is the one of psychology, which has never successfully, even to this day, ever successfully been able to explain itself in simpler terms, the terms of physiology or histology. So suddenly you have this state that is predicated on the idea that uh, scientific government is possible and everything will be explainable in scientific terms at the very point where the cutting-edge researchers in a number of fields are going, it doesn't work. And, I mean, a number of things sent many Bolsheviks mad, but that was uh, that was a that was a key one. How far was Soviet science responsible for the huge industrial developments that they had in at the time of Stalin's five-year plans? A lot of scientific findings were ignored. I mean, there's no doubt that the educational effort of the Bolsheviks was extraordinary and in so many ways entirely admirable. But the education became increasingly narrower and narrower as the five-year plans took over and as industrial output and very sort of crudely metricized industrial output was taken to be more significant for the state and more important to encourage than um, rural learning. So you have a number of tragic stories of very well-trained, very well-motivated scientists and engineers pointing out the problems with five-year plans, and these are the people who are shot. These are the people who are exiled. So you're brought on, you rise to a good position, you get to a position of influence, and that is the point at which you hit political trouble and very serious political trouble at that. There are a number of figures that have been written about at greater length by um, by very good historians. Uh, there's a lovely book by Lauren Graham about Peter Palczynski, the engineer who pointed out that Magnitogorsk, the uh, world's largest steel plant, was being built next to a mountain that didn't have nearly as much iron as people thought it had and was nowhere near the coal fields necessary to power it. And the workers were having their accommodation built in the uh, in the path of all the uh, pollution that was going to come out of the smokestacks of the factory. He died in, uh, he was shot for his trouble, in fact. He was, he was imprisoned and eventually shot. Did that mean that scientists fared particularly badly during the purges of the 1930s? It's easy to exaggerate the extent to which the scientists were particularly picked out for doing their science. Better to look at where these people come from and where they were educated and the institutions that they visited and the number of foreign links that they had. So scientists would do badly if they had a large international peer group, which of course is is particularly true of the sciences, less true of the applied sciences engineering. So scientists were targeted more for their lifestyle, if you like, and more for their cultural background than for the science that they were actually promulgating. Uh, Obviously, there are some notorious cases of where um, an increasingly doctrinaire government felt the need, indeed the obligation, to be scientifically literate and scientifically opinionated. And so you have a, a number of uh, absurdities like the reluctance to take uh, Einstein seriously. Uh, not exceptional to Russia, uh, but quite notable. But largely, 
the purges of 1937 are not directed to the intellectual content of disciplines, but much more to the to the social content. This is one of the things that I found particularly interesting and particularly hard to get uh, to grips with in, in writing this book was the degree to which the anger and the hurt and the trauma of the period had created a kind of hagiography around scientific figures as if it was their brilliant ideas were lost during the revolution that actually caused them the political trouble that they fell into, sometimes lethal political trouble. Often that was not the case. It was about where they were born and who they were born to. How much did the Soviet leadership seek to intervene in scientific research or did they let the scientists get on with it? This is an area that proper historians get very uncomfortable around because the fact is that Joseph Stalin himself considered himself the last of the great philosopher kings. He is the leader of a state that believes in science and believes that it can be scientific. And his scientific views are incredibly influential. His personal scientific views are incredibly influential over Soviet policy to an extent that makes any modern historian wince slightly because it's it's never good to sink to the you know the the great man view of history in which a few privileged actors are allowed to move inanimate objects around the around the globe nonetheless this is true of joseph stalin he believed in the inheritance of acquired characteristics um, to put it crudely the idea that since grown-up giraffes have to stretch their necks to eat the leaves off the tall trees, their children will be born with longer necks. That's the basic idea. Now, this was a very, very ordinary idea at the time. It was perfectly uh, conventional. It was also perfectly legitimate. You can come up with lots and lots of evidence that uh, the inheritance of acquired characteristics exists, and it takes a lot of work to demonstrate that, in fact, it's, that life is more complicated than that. Stalin believed uh, in the inheritance of acquired characteristics is neither here nor there. The fact that he turned this into government policy changed the lives and ended the lives of millions because it had profound effects on uh, agri- uh, agricultural policy. It is not a comfortable position to be in to write a book saying that someone's love of lemon trees and his belief that you can grow lemon trees in Siberia, as Joseph Stalin did, uh, led to the deaths of millions. And yet you can draw a very clear line and see how while dealing with all manner of crises, the Second World War not being the least of them, Stalin was involving himself day to day in the editing of speeches by certain scientific figures, not just correcting their political mistakes, but correcting their scientific mistakes. And, you know, now and again, being absolutely right to correct them and actually getting the science right by the lights of his day. This is not a story, however, of a government not liking what the scientists are telling it. This is the story of a society of science fans, if you like, people who are extraordinarily committed to science, but are also extraordinarily committed to the idea that science ought to be getting easier. If all the sciences can start explaining each other, then really science ought to be getting simpler and simpler. And the 
way science develops over this period of uh, 1900 to 1950 it is pointing in the exact opposite direction. It's the professionalization of science. It's the burgeoning of extraordinarily difficult and counterintuitive vocabularies in order to explain what's going on, which of course is why Einstein was such a difficult figure for people to handle. All over Europe, societies were set up saying, we can't let physics become this ludicrous, this this uh, unrational. Uh, it's it's not a reasonable thing to do. So these debates that you find the tension between politics and science are not unique to Russia, but they have a unique poignancy and a unique power uh, and a unique toxicity in Russia because of the political commitment to a scientific worldview. And were there many scientists that dared to disagree? with the Stalinist view on various scientific matters? There are a number of celebrated martyrs. Nikolai Vavilov was primarily a, a bureaucrat rather than a scientist, um, but he is regarded as the 20th century's most significant scientific martyr in that he stood up for genetics at a time when classical genetics was being sidelined and its institutions destroyed in order to make room for agrobiological experiments being cooked up through questionnaires, essentially, by the uh, the agricultural commissariat. So the defense of genetics is, is the classic example. Even here, though, it's not so much in the detail that you find the arguments being played out, so much as in the political implications of the detail. Essentially, the opposition largely conducted by uh, Trofim Lysenko, the, the infamous charlatan who became Stalin's poster boy for Soviet agrobiological policy, didn't have the vocabulary to argue against classical genetics. The debates are conducted on a much more social level and much more to do with uh, how many foreign friends do you know and how many letters are you writing to uh, uh, foreign organizations. A lot of scientists do try and work within the Soviet system. There are a lot of genuine, sincere Marxist scientists who are trying to plug their sciences into the prevailing uh, scientific philosophy of dialectical materialism. If you're a biologist, that particular uh, philosophical approach you can feel very comfortable with, and it's quite possible to be a, a dialectical biologist. And in fact, there are a number of them in the US working today. It's really not a problem. If you're a physicist, then it's much, much more difficult to use uh, dialectical materialism because that philosophical approach says that there is a history to everything. And it's not until very recently that we've started to become comfortable with the idea that the laws of physics themselves might have a history. Were there members of the scientific community that wholeheartedly believed and supported Marxism? Ironically, the one area that perhaps benefited most from the Soviet experiment was psychology. It had an incredible uphill struggle to explain itself because, of course, this is the point at which at the time of revolution, this is not that long after William James famously decides that there is no such thing as psychology. There are lots of little psychologies running around trying to put the evidence together and come up with a coherent picture, but it's nowhere near a science yet. Marxist psychology was a remarkably broad church that 
produced a tremendous amount of interesting data. It was far and away the most interesting center for developmental psychology through uh, the work of uh, Lev Vygotsky and uh, a number of others, including Alexander Luria. It was looking at the way um, psychology and sociology would work together, in some cases looking at the way whole societies would develop. It was also making genuine efforts to try and find the association between um, psychological ideas and the ideas of physiology through people like Pavlov, but Pavlov was an old man by then. We're looking more at people like uh, Bechterev and uh, Bernstein and people like that. So there was a tremendous effort from within the Marxist tradition to get hold of the idea of mind. And of course, it is the terrible tragedy. These days, we think of the Soviet system, we, we think of a country that has no grasp of mind, that throws political dissidents into mental hospitals. And one of the chief reasons why this happened was actually not ideological. It was uh, to do with the way organizations worked under Stalin and under the Soviet system, in that there was this increasing centralization bit by bit by bit, so that different disciplines within psychology and within medicine would be stabbing each other in the back in order to get the paycheck in order to get the place to work, in order to get the lab time, in order to get the institutions, in order to get uh, you know all the, all, the, all the various benefits that accrue to scientists in, in, in their role. So when we look at the people who are working comfortably within a Marxist purview, if you like, you're also looking at people who are stabbing each other in the back and creating fake purges uh, in order to keep the politicos off their back. And it really is a case of maggots being trapped in a tin and you wait for the largest maggots it to emerge at the end of the experiment. And of course, that happens to be a very, very denuded, stripped back, politically correct, blunt weapon that is called Pavlovianism, that is called the conditional reflex, but really has very little to do with um, the work of Ivan Pavlov himself. And this was a time, obviously, for the Soviet Union of great military experiences, most famously the Great Patriotic War. How much was Soviet science um, tied into the Soviet military? One reached a point where because the specialists and the specialist scientists and engineers were born, especially the older ones, born into a world that was uh, cosmopolitan, that was not homegrown, that actually responded to European tradition. The Soviet government regarded these people with uh, incredible suspicion. At the same time, they had not been able to bring on their own homegrown intellectuals, scientists, specialists, engineers at nearly the rate that they had hoped to. Um, it was not without effort and it was not without canniness and intelligence that they had tried to develop their education system, but it had not worked at the scale that they needed certainly to prosecute um, the Great Patriotic War. So the solution, uh, in fact, was cooked up by um, a bunch of scientists who were caught in the gulag who said, well, look, if you don't send us to Siberia, we will undertake to create a, a laboratory within prison and uh, we will research for you these topics and please don't send us into the cold place. We will work for you from within prison. And this became the system of Sharashki. Uh, Sharashka was essentially a specialist gulag. You could conduct your scientific work within the prison system and you were left alone. And this is the extraordinary thing about the Sharashkas is that 
even though you are there in prison, this is the place where it doesn't really matter what your political views are. It doesn't matter what you've learned in France or Belgium or London. Um, it comes down to what you can actually produce within a set time frame. So in a strange way, it is a sort of dark twin of the ivory tower. It is a place where you can set a goal, get funding, do your work, it works or it doesn't work. And those Rashki were unbelievably successful. I can't off the top of my head remember the percentage of military projects and uh, military equipment that was put through R&D during the Patriotic War. But the success rate was absolutely extraordinary for the work that was done. And so the Second World War was an extraordinarily fertile time uh, at the most dreadful human cost. Would you say that the last years of Stalin's reign were almost the apogee of Soviet science when you had things like the development of the space race and the nuclear bomb? The nuclear and um, rocketry uh, developments within the Sharashki are a continuation of um, a story that began just before the start of the war. It is essentially a, a story of economics, the realization that this system works. So when you no longer want people to be working in prison camps, all you really have to do is point the guns the other way and make sure that the guns are pointing outwards and people are being kept away from all the various secret institutions, post office boxes, secret cities that scattered the Soviet Union at, uh, by the end of uh, Stalin's reign and continued to proliferate uh, throughout the rest of the course of Soviet history. I think Stalin's own involvement in science after the war is a very different story and is a is a, a, a terrible and violent dying fall in which Stalin, who is increasingly isolated, who is quite sick, quite ill by this point, begins to develop a scientific philosophy of his own, which essentially denies the, the coherence of the individual self. He believes that the self is language. He's a sort of cross between a, a pantomime villain and uh, Jacques Lacan at this point. He starts to think that everything can be expressed and everyone is readable. So there are two stories going on here. There is the creation of some kind of economic model that will produce the most extraordinary space program that the world has ever seen, certainly the most reliable. And at the same time, you have a leader whose own scientific obsessions are playing him and the state at an increasing rate. You've mentioned a few already, but were there any scientists you came across while researching this book whose stories really stood out to you? I was particularly struck, inevitably, really, because it's such a it's, it's such an extraordinary story, um, by Ivan Ivanov. Uh, because you're throwing out so many very high-quality scientists at the point of revolution, that a lot of the ideas that you then receive back into the fold are eccentric. And a lot of people who were thrown out of consideration under the czars are now suddenly got their moment in the, in, in the socialist sun. There are a number of cases of you know uh, people like uh, Ivan Michurin, who's a plantsman, who becomes a sort of Soviet Luther Burbank and inadvertently does huge damage to the Soviet agriculture because he too believes in the inheritance of acquired characteristics and he becomes certainly after his death a big stick with which to to, to bludgeon the geneticists. Ivan Ivanov is a 
very different case. He was internationally known as a developer of artificial insemination, an incredibly important technique because it means that you can increase the number of horses that you have available to agriculture tenfold within a generation. So it's rather like discovering oil. The, the power available to your agricultural base suddenly increases and this is, this is a wonderful thing. But he still couldn't get the funding that he expected from the Bolshevik government. So he decided, because he was also a research biologist who had cooked up all manner of interesting animal hybrids, he was crossing guinea pig with rabbit and rabbit with mouse and mouse with rat and all the rest of it. Uh, he decided that it would be a good idea to go along to the Commissariat of Education and say, well, look, there's no reason that we know of that we can't cross a human and a chimpanzee. And if we can cross a human and a chimpanzee, we'll know an awful lot about human evolution. And it will be useful to you from a, a political point of view because it will enable you to use this to demonstrate your materialist philosophy and uh, undermine the doctrines of the church. So he gets funding from the Academy of Sciences. He gets funding from French backers. He gets American funding as well. And he actually goes out there and the cross doesn't work. And we now know why it doesn't work. But the terrible thing is that when he is out there, he conducts experiments on African women without their knowledge. And when he gets home, the um, Academy of Sciences essentially ends his career. They, they put him out to grass because he has ruined any possibility that the Soviets can actually get good research relationships in French Guinea for a generation because he's queered their pitch completely. So figures like this who have real standing, who suddenly find themselves without resources and have to become entrepreneurs, these figures run throughout the history. And I suppose the reason I like um, the, the, the Ivanov story is that the way it goes wrong reveals the the power structures that operate within Russian science and the discussions around that project also reveal how some of the things that we think of as particularly Russian and outre and peculiar and you know foreign if you like are actually international issues that we've conveniently forgotten about the fact is he was an internationally famous researcher getting international funding for an international project and now of course we talk of it as if it was these crazy Russians trying to create eight men which is deeply unfair what would you say was the greatest scientific discovery of this part of the Soviet history? One has a lot to choose from. For my money, it was the work that Alexander Luria and colleagues conducted at the Kizagak during the war, which was a field hospital for people who had suffered uh, head injuries, gunshot wounds to the head. And what Luria and his colleagues were able to do was to begin to understand, not to get beyond this idea that different parts of the brain have certain functions, so you can easily divide the brain up on, on it spatially. He understood how these areas work together to create functions, so that you would have, for example, in the case of his patient, Zazetsky, famous case of his, because Zazetsky actually wrote a book called I'll Fight On about his experiences having been shot in the head. Zazetsky would have executive functions enabling him to, say, want to write a memoir, but some simpler functions have been damaged by his head injury, which which meant that he was unable to see the left hand of objects. And if so, if he would concentrate on a word, he could only see the right hand of it. If he concentrated on each individual letter, he could only see the right hand side of 
each letter. So that's the level of understanding how the different parts of the brain work together to create systems and hierarchies and functions. That's the point at which you start to get really good neuropsychology. That makes <laughs> that makes people like Oliver Sacks possible, essentially, and, and, the, uh, and the industry and the medicine to which he contributed so much. There's much to say about the Soviet atomic project. There's much to say about Soviet physics. And there's a great deal to say about Soviet genetics. Soviet genetics was far and away ahead of everywhere, uh, but possibly the US. And it's not even clear then. Russian researchers were so far ahead of the game so quickly. They were an extraordinary generation. And sadly, they didn't last past the war for political reasons. But for me, it's the neuropsychology. That was Simon Ings. Stalin and the Scientists, A History of Triumph and Tragedy, 1905-1953, to is out now in the UK, published by Faber. In the US, it will be published in February by Atlantic Monthly Press. Meanwhile, the December edition of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. This month's issue includes articles on Edward I, the murder of Rasputin, the Klondike Gold Rush, Medieval Cities, Black British History and plenty more. You can get hold of our December issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new direct debit subscribers in the UK, where you can pick a free book worth £25, as well as save 33% on the shop price. To take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP210. And the offer ends on the 31st of December this year. Our second interview this week is with the food writer William Sitwell, whose wonderfully titled book, Eggs or Anarchy, recalls one of Britain's great battles of the Second World War, to feed its people. He spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton. What inspired you to write a book on this particular subject? In the first book that I wrote, which is A History of Food and 100 Recipes, um, which traced the story of food back about 4,000 years, there was a chapter in that book about the Second World War and about rationing. And in the course of my research for that, I came across Lord Woolton, the Minister of Food in the Second World War. And I found a sort of fragment of his memoirs, literally a photocopied page somewhere, where he talked about... Um, uh, an occasion during the Second World War when he'd sent his head of rice at the ministry, a man called Harold Sanderson, off to um, Cairo to find, um, you know, 200,000 tonnes of rice. And when the man came back, and it was a, obviously a terrible trip and he'd become very ill, etc., etc., he reported back to Walton and said, look, I've got the amount of rice that you wanted. Um but I had to use some rather untoward methods and I bought you 200,000 tons, but I, but 100,000 of those tons were on the black market. And Walton wrote in, in his memoirs that he neither wished to inquire uh, nor wanted to find out exactly what the details were. In other words, here was a man in Whitehall preaching to Britain not to use the black market, but in order to feed that country was sort of using his own foodie agents 
around the world to use rather sort of less, you know, above board means to get food into Britain. And I thought, there's an amazing story here, surely. So I started digging deeper and I pitched it to a few publishers. And finally, Ian McGregor at Simon & Schuster bit my bait. And I thought, oh, God, am I going to stand this story up? And as I dug deeper, I discovered, actually, this was an extraordinary story that hadn't been told. I discovered his memoirs, which had been written in the 50s, which which within a rather kind of dry tale are some extraordinary stories. I also found his unpublished diaries in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Uh, I met the family who gave me papers. So, for example, there was Lady Walton, Fred Walton's wife, who kept a very clear record of our, all of our husband's dealings and everything that she got up to, including meetings with Churchill and the royal family. And those diaries had never even been looked at by the family. They were bolted shut with a key, and I had to prise them open with a pair of pliers. And I came across all sorts of other family papers and stuff, and I realized that here was an extraordinary story about the Second World War, about food, and about the man who, without whom, you know, Britain could easily have have starved and lost the war. And I realized this story hasn't been told. So I thought I was like, I, I was onto a bit of a winner. So yeah, the, the origins, origins of the story were in my previous book. Hmm. Why do you think the story hasn't been told before? Because it seems like such a huge deal to have this responsibility on your shoulders. <laughs> I don't know. I think people knew about Lord Walton and people sort of knew a bit about the fact that there was this thing called Walton Pie, which was a rather dull pie that was named in honour or dishonour of Walton. Um, and and I suppose people sort of, I don't know, you never really realise why someone hasn't uncovered, a, hasn't told the story. And as a journalist, as a food writer, when you come across something like that, you just feel incredibly lucky. And I, I kind of thought, my God, I better keep this secret because I don't want anyone else doing it. Because also, you know, there's a lot of interest, well, particularly this year in the First World War, but but there's a lot of interest in the Second World War and food and rationing and so on. Um, I was just lucky, I suppose, that no one had really gone down this avenue. And and the more I dug and the more amazing stories that I that I discovered, the more lucky I felt, and the more I thought I've got to keep this a secret until the book comes out. Yeah, I mean, how how did Walton end up in this position? What do we know about his early earlier life? Well. One of the amazing things about Walton's story is that he came from incredibly humble origins. His father was an itinerant saddler. Um, his grandfather was the landlord of a small little pub up, up, up in Lancashire. He was very firmly from working class stock. Um, but he had a, a, a kind of business knack about him. He was passionate about um, social affairs and poverty and so on from a, from a young age. I mean, he spent quite a lot of his early life in, as a student living in the poorest parts of Manchester, literally studying the causes of poverty. And then, uh, for various reasons, he, he and, and a bit of luck, um, he ended up working for a retail group called Lewis's, which under his um, stewardship became the biggest department store chain in Britain. Uh, no relation of John Lewis. And so aged 59, he was a very successful businessman. Um, he'd been knighted and he was looking forward to a bit of a retirement, um, having had a very busy and successful life, basically clothing Britain. And um, the government asked him as a man who was able to run large businesses, if he would help uh, clothe some of the allied armies. And so he had a rather boring job in the Ministry of Supply. And then Neville Chamberlain then wrote to him 
and said, look, can you come and run the Ministry of Food? There'd been a rather poor candidate, a man called Morrison, who'd been running it. And Neville Chamberlain thought, well, look, if you can, if you, you know, made quite a good fist of running the ministry, what, being a, a consultant to the Ministry of Supply, will you come and run the Ministry of Food? And so Wilton decided that he would, and he was made a peer. So as a member of the House of Lords, he was able to join the government. And then when Chamberlain uh, resigned as PM and Churchill took over, Churchill summoned Wilton, and Wilton really, you know, offered his resignation. And actually, Churchill didn't think this guy would survive because he didn't really like the idea of businessmen in, in government. You know, I think Churchill and his fellow establishment cabinet colleagues were a bit sniffy about this boy done good, latterly made a peer, parachuted into government, whereas people like Churchill, you know, they come up the greasy pole of politics. and they, So they didn't think Walton would survive. And Churchill said to a colleague, we're going to have to send in a rescue squad for Walton pretty soon. So he didn't think that he would he would stay in the job very long. So it was really his business background and his capacity for running large business and running large numbers of people that um, parachuted him in, into government. But he quickly came across the vast machine of, of the civil service and he had to battle. But what it, I think one of the secrets of his success ultimately was that he was a he used his extraordinary commercial chutzpah and his businessman acumen in a way that he could cut through all of the red tape. Um, and, and given the fact he had this innate passion of dealing with the problems of poverty, you know, feeding Britain was something that, that wasn't just a job, it was an instinct um, in terms of caring for people that he'd always had anyway. So a businessman plus that, that passion for the care of people really meant that he was a uniquely you know, able person to do that job. Hmm. I mean, how did the tension from the political classes manifest itself and how how did he deal with it? What techniques did he use to get around it? In in the book, I go to quite considerable detail about his individual dealings with Churchill. Uh, Churchill had a particular way of, of sort of, I mean, Churchill didn't like rationing for a start and rather scoffed at um, the way that Wilton seemed to rather relish the job. Um, and actually what I discovered is that, is that while Britain, um, kind of tightened its belt, Churchill distinctly loosened his, there was no such thing as rationing at Chequers or Downing Street. And there were, I found, I came across quite a lot of letters written from Churchill's office to the, to junior people in the food ministry. So they wouldn't cross Wilton's desk asking for extra sugar coupons, ration coupons and so <laughs> on for Mr. Churchill, because he had to entertain, and, and on the on the occasion, the few occasions when Walton was entertained at Chequers by Churchill, you know, the food there was there was no lack of there was no <laughs> lack of food. So Walton kind of really challenged Churchill and took him on almost as a sort of um, personal challenge. And and I think he felt, look, I've got to feed Britain, so I'm I don't care if I have to put Churchill and his cabinet colleagues' noses out of joint. He had to battle with the Ministry of Shipping, particularly because at various points in the war shipping was used to transport troops. So Walton had to fight to be able to get shipping to transport food into the country. And in his diaries, he re he reveals sort of extraordinary frustrations um, and, you know, attacks. There's, there's, a, there's an amazing moment when he's sitting in Neville Chamberlain's, at Neville Chamberlain's funeral, and he casts his eye upon all these, his cabinet colleagues in their overcoats, shivering in the cathedral because the windows have been blown out. 
and he just attacks every single one of them, saying, you know, they're they're more interested in their careers than England. And he slags off Lord Reith, he slags off Beaverbrook, Bevin. He's he's he just he he says that Churchill is not is really just a warlord who has no in, interest in Britain. And he says that it's all very well winning the war, but what will be left? You know, there's not we'll, we'll have won the war for nothing because you know the war will be won, but Britain will have starved. So he 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 just he didn't worry about what anyone thought about him, and so he took on the cabinet. Um, but but he also took on sort of war profiteers and dodgy traders overseas, and and there, there are some amazing stories there. What uh, personal characteristics do you think helped him uh, hold this position down? Um, well, he had he had ex- he had this kind of extraordinary self belief. Um, and he had amazing, amazing natural, he had an amazing natural gift for commerce. And so he would, he would engage with dodgy traders overseas in ways that no one else would have ever thought of. I mean, there was an occasion when his head of sugar came to see him in about 1943 and said, look, we've got a real problem because um, the world's stocks of sugar seem to have depleted. And the only person who's selling sugar is a man called Pasha Aboud, who's based in Alexandria. But he's trying to charge us such a huge amount of money that if we pay him what he wants, we'll destroy our budget for uh, for other goods. And so Wilton thought for a moment and then said, look, where else is there a supply of sugar? And they discovered that there was a, a bit of a mountain of sugar in Queensland. So he got Lloyd's, the shipping brokers, to commit to ship sugar from, from Queensland. But what he said is, look, I let it be known that actually on the streets of Alexandria that I'm not going to ship this sugar from Queensland to the UK, but I'm going to ship it to Alexandria, i.e. he was going to start selling sugar in Alexandria himself as a trader in order to bring the price down, which is the most extraordinary thing to do. And so quickly, Pasha Aboud, the great sugar trader who basically, because of the fragment, fragmented supply routes and so on, really controlled the world's sugar supply, sent a telegram to London ur- urgently asking for an interview with Walton. And he turns up in London and Walton kind of goes, oh, my good man, you know, I know nothing about sugar, but I'm sure you'd like to, you know, as an ally, support Britain, and be a patriot. And anyway, um, the ministry negotiates with this man, Abood, for a few days. And then there's, there's this dinner at which they thank this man because he's relented and said he will sell sh- Britain's sugar at a decent price, at which there's some upstart member of parliament who stands up and says and mocks Aboud saying I'm sure when you came over you, you you expected you were going to take the skin off Wilton and this man went red in the face and Wilton stood up and said look Aboud is nothing more than a patriot who wants to help um, the allies to get a victory and then Aboud then stands up and says I've decided I'm not going to sell you any sugar I'm going to give you a million tons and so Wilton, through his own commercial acumen, manages to take on uh, a war profiteer. And actually, this man so admires Wilton, he ends up giving him a million tons of sugar. (laughs) And then there's a lovely sweet end to the story, because at the end of the war, Wilton, who actually decided not to accept the free sugar, because he thought um, he'd probably be too much in this man's debt, said, look, we'll either pay you back at the end of the war or we'll just pay back in sugar. At the end of the war, um, Aboud 
in the late 40s, writes to Walton and says, look, I so enjoyed our dealings during the war. Will you come and sit on my board? Come and spend your winters in Egypt in my palace. <laughs> <laughs> this is obviously a, a massive task, despite his, his skill at it. Were there any points at which it was particularly touch and go or there was huge moments of crisis? There were many, many moments of crisis. And one of the reasons why I call the book Eggs or Anarchy is that there were days when Walton did not know that he, that he would be able to honour the ration that week. And I, you cannot underestimate the importance of getting the, the meagre ration onto the shelves of the grocers and the butchers by Friday or Saturday morning. Because Walton's deal with the British people was, you stick with the ration, you avoid the black market, and I will honour your um, good practice by making sure that that meagre ration that I promised you will be there you know, on a Saturday morning. And there was one afternoon on a Friday when Walton was sort of looking forward to a quiet weekend. And he had, I think, six cables from the Admiralty saying that um, ships had been sunk coming across the Atlantic. And this was a huge problem because it meant that, you know, a lot of these ships were bringing wheat for bread, bacon. I mean, Britain's food security in the Second World War, I mean, it was better than during the First World War, but it was still very, very poor. We relied on importing Everything from you know potatoes to onions to flour to wheat to, to I mean it's extraordinary how how unself sufficient we were. That was before the Dig for Victory campaign took off, which made a huge difference. But what Walton had to do therefore was to make sure that he had supplies in warehouses so that at moments of huge crisis he would be able to just about um, you know honor the ration by the end of the week. So when when ships supply ships were under under attack from the Atlantic. I mean, he said, he said at one point, the nation will never know quite how, you know, uh, a near peril we were from the, the submarine attacks. And so there were moments of real touch and go, but because he had a, an extraordinary handle on the distribution, he was just able to, at moments of crisis, just about get the ration onto the, the shelves of, of stores across the country. It's amazing. What did the public make of him? Well, he became in time a popular politician um, and was known as Uncle Fred because he was this sort of patrician friendly man uh, who was who was feeding the country. Um, but he had a but he had moments of deep unpopularity. I mean, one of the fascinating things I discovered with looking finding all the press cuttings about him was that when, when he got into the job, he, he got a very good press. But in, by May 1941, he was being savaged by all the newspapers. And he had a real battle on his hands in terms of PR. Because, um, I mean, we look back on it now thinking, oh, Britain was just one long, big, patriotic, you know, happy place during the, the war and everyone was clubbing together. But there was real anger. You know, imagining all the, you know, all of the queues outside stores up and down the land. And he had a real battle on his hands, and he spent a lot of time lunching with the press barons. He had a regular uh, group of food journalists who would meet him in his in his offices uh, in um, in Fitzrovia. They would sit in the pub in the afternoon and then pile into his office, and he would brief them. So he would often have quite stern meetings with them because he had to persuade them to stop writing, to stop attacking him because they said it was bad for morale. And as I say, he spent quite a lot of time schmoozing. The, the owners of newspapers, newspaper proprietors, and so on. So he really worked at his image. Um, and, 
you know, he, he but although he was never actually a member of the Conservative Party until Churchill lost, and then he became a paid-up member after the war. But um, he was he had a benign sort of reputation, and he did become one of the most famous politicians of the day. I mean, I think after Churchill, Wilton was a very very familiar face. He was a sort of proper sort of celebrity politician, and actually, of Churchill's war cabinet, I think. He still remains the only one that people really, you know, knew and felt uh, sort of kinship with. I mean, he he did very regular broadcasts. He broadcasts on the radio very often, um, and he was in newsreel and so on. So he became quite a familiar face uh, of British homes up and down the country. What was the thing that surprised you the most uh, researching this book? Um, one of the things that surprised me was reading Wilton's criticism of his cabinet colleagues, because one sort of has this idea that they're all as one and they're all, you know, these, these, these men unified and all kind of of great caliber. And Wilton's rather sort of lacerating criticisms of them did make it a lot more sort of real because these were, these were real people with real human frailties and the fact that they were constantly arguing in cabinet each for their own budget, you know, and, and and the slippery sort of pole of politics, the way that, of course, that was absolutely just as an evidence during the Second World War as, as, in, as it is today. Those things sort of, I thought, were absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think really just, you know, given the fact that today we have as much food as we want, 24 hours a day, learning about the absolute extraordinary privations that the British public had to endure, I find absolutely extraordinary. And one of the things I, that is, I think, one of the most interesting things I've discovered in the book was that Britain during the Second World War, when we came out of the Second World War, we were never healthier. You know, mortality, infant mortality rates improved, our dental health improved, you know, the, 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 the fat rich got slimmer, the thin poor put on weight. There was an extraordinary equilibrium in terms of what we ate because Lord Wilton ran Britain like the manager of a shop. He controlled exactly what everyone ate. He managed to pretty much stop the British public from resorting to the black market too much, which I think was a massive problem in Germany, but didn't happen in Britain. And, you know, today we have an extraordinary obesity epidemic Obesity costs more to the British government than the cost of terrorism. Yet we have all the food available to us at all times. And interestingly enough, the average count of calories per man or woman during the Second World War was actually higher than it was than it is today. But of course, we moved around a bit more. You know, we were more active. So I think the fact that under rationing, we became healthier than at any time before or since in our history, I think is extraordinary. That is extraordinary. That's amazing. Um, finally, then, are there any ways in which you'd like this book to change how you view this period or perhaps food today in the 21st century? What I'd like, I, what I'd like people to realise is quite how well the British cope during rationing. Um, in a way, we kind of relished it. I think it's one of the reasons why we're never going to be a sort of naturally brilliant food culture because when we were challenged with living on the ration, the British people just said, yeah, we will, and we'll love it. You know, I think I think I do admire the, the, the British character trait for the fact how, how quite how well we coped. But I think it is a real lesson for us in terms of 
um, how you can live and eat simply. Because, of course, vegetables and wild game were not a part of the ration. So those people who did sort of forage um, did okay. I mean, what's interesting is that um, there were people, obviously, who had sort of large estates would check into the Savoy Hotel and they'd have a brace of pheasants in one hand and a haunch of venison in their suitcase. And they were able to sort of do quite well you know, when they stayed at those smart hotels. Um, but I think really it's the ingenuity of the British public to cope with the ration. But to me, the most important thing is that there was this extraordinary man whose character I've discovered and, and the tales of which I tell in the book, who I am at last bringing to the public attention that without this man, we could have lost the war. And I think that's what's so extraordinary. That's why the book's called Eggs or Anarchy, because if it, if it hadn't been for Lord Walton, um, who both, because of his persona and his character, managed to you know, endear himself to the British people, that plus his extraordinary commercial and business acumen, it meant that he could get food in and he persuaded the British public to stick to the ration. So if there's one thing I people want, I'd like people to remember, it's, it's about Fred Walton, Uncle Fred, who basically, it's the great untold story of the Second World War, the man who fed Britain. That was William Sitwell. Eggs or Anarchy, the remarkable story of the man tasked with the impossible to feed a nation at war, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. And now it's time for this week's History News with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. 81 extremely rare tree trunk coffins, dating back to the Anglo-Saxon period, have been discovered during a historic England excavation in Norfolk. The graves are thought to be part of an early Christian burial ground, dating back to between the 7th and 9th centuries. Archaeologists have also uncovered evidence of a church on the site, and six plank-lined graves, thought to be the earliest of their kind ever discovered in Britain. The well-preserved wooden coffins represent a highly unusual find. Archaeologist James Fairclough, who led the dig, told the BBC that the waterlogged conditions of the site, along with a combination of acidic sand and alkaline water, quote, created the perfect conditions for the skeletons and wooden graves to survive, revealing remarkable details of Christian Anglo-Saxon burial practices. Tim Pestle, curator at the Norwich Castle Museum, commented, This site was in use in the heyday of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of East Anglia. We have no documentary sources that relate to this site, and so archaeological finds like this are crucial in helping us to understand the development of the kingdom. Meanwhile, off the coast of Indonesia, three Dutch shipwrecks dating back to the Second World War have seemingly vanished from the seabed. The warships were sunk during the 1942 Battle of the Java Sea and have since been declared a war grave, marking the deaths of around 2,200 people. The Netherlands Defence Ministry have launched an investigation into the wreck's disappearance, expressing concern that the warships may have been illegally salvaged. They stated that, quote, The desecration of a war grave is a serious offence. In other news... A 2,500-year-old mummy has been discovered near Egypt's Valley of the Kings. The remains were uncovered by a team of Spanish archaeologists in a tomb near Luxor, believed to date back to between 1,075 BC and 664 BC. The archaeologists have described the mummy as being in very good condition and have suggested that it may be that of an ancient Egyptian nobleman named Amenrenev, 
who served the royal household. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that our York History Weekend begins tomorrow, the 18th of November. There are still tickets available for the event, so if you're going to be in the city this weekend, why not come along to some of the talks? You can find out more details at historyweekend.com and tickets will be available on the door to those talks that haven't sold out. We look forward to seeing many of you there. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we're going to be talking about the arts and craft movement and some of history's most unusual characters. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.